All right, well, tonight we are starting a new study on Wednesday nights, a study in the book of Exodus. So why don't you turn there? Book of Exodus. Now, as we've just finished the book of Genesis, we saw that the uh, book of Genesis ended with the death of Joseph in Egypt, but not before he made the children of Israel promise to take his bones with them when God brought them out of Egypt and to bury him then, or his bones, in the promised land. Now that happened, as we're going to see in chapter 13, verse 19. Moses did do that. But uh, the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis, which is why the Hebrew text begins with the word and. In fact, originally the entire Pentateuch was one single volume containing one continuous story of the origin of the nation of Israel, starting with one man, Abraham in the book of Genesis, and then ending with the death of Moses to close the book of Deuteronomy. But uh, the word exodus means exit, departure, or going out, and the theme of the book is deliverance, or some have said redemption. However, you know, you can't have deliverance without a deliverer, and therefore the principal figure around which the book is built is God's deliverer, Moses. Now, Moses is considered by many to be the greatest figure in the Old Testament. He's not only the great liberator, he's also the great legislator and mediator. In fact, in many ways, Moses is a type of Christ, fulfilling the roles of prophet, priest, and king of the nation of Israel. And uh, as we're going to see, God will use Moses to lead his people out of the bondage of Egypt, even as he would someday use his son Jesus Christ to lead us out of the bondage of sin and death. Now, we're just laying some groundwork, but uh, it is fairly well accepted by Jewish and Christian scholars alike that Moses was the writer of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And uh, as I've already said, the book of Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off. Although there's a lapse of about four centuries from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. We read in Exodus 12 verse 40 that the time the children of Israel spent in Egypt was 430 years. Let me read it to you. Uh, Exodus 40 and 41 actually. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on the very same day. It came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So they were down in Egypt for 430 years. Now, scholars disagree about the, uh, the date of the Exodus. Many put it between 1500 and 1450 B.C. Some put it as early as 1280, but uh, I think most conservative scholars say the Exodus took place around 1450, 1500 B.C. Now, Whereas the book of Genesis dealt with really the beginning of a family, the book of Exodus deals with the birth of a nation. And it's coming out of slavery to begin a new life, basically, as a new nation. The book of Exodus divides itself into three main sections. The Exodus, chapters 1 through 18. The Law, chapters 19 to 24. And then the Tabernacle, chapters 25 to 40. Now, you may not realize this, but the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, written by Moses, takes up nearly one-seventh of the entire Bible. And Paul said, these things written in the Old Testament were written for our learning. Remember he said that in Romans 15, verse 4? 
that we, he said, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have what? Hope. The book of Exodus has much to teach us about redemption, which is the hope of every child of God. You know, there's so much to learn in the Old Testament. I've had people tell me, well, I don't read the Old Testament because that's the Old Testament. I hang out in the New Testament. It's all God's word. I think it was Augustine that said, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed. In the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. It's the Older Testament. Okay, It's not the outdated testament, just the one that came first and now the fulfillment is the new covenant. But there is so much we can, you know, Jesus quoted out of the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book he taught from or quoted from. There is so much for us to glean from the Old Testament and the Pentateuch is so rich with principles. And the book of Exodus is one that shines forth in the Pentateuch as a book, being a book of, of redemption, boy, so much we can learn from this book about redemption, especially because Moses is a type of Christ. So we'll uh, look at that. So without further delay, let's begin our journey through this remarkable book. Chapter 1. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man uh, and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was, all, was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So 70 people went down to Egypt, and 430 years later, between 2 and 3 million made their exodus out of Egypt. Now it begs the question, what was the purpose of the children of Israel having to go down to Egypt and spending, we know why they went down there, to escape the famine, and Joseph provided for them, but why 430 years? What was God's purpose in keeping them down in Egypt all those years? Well, I think there's two main reasons. First, God planted the children of Israel in Egypt, listen, to prepare them for the promised land. To prepare them for the promised land. In many ways, Egypt was a sort of an incubator, you might say, that allowed the children of Israel to flourish and grow. Of course, much of it was due to adversity, as we're going to see, which allowed, though, the 70 that entered Egypt to become the 2.5 million that exited. In fact, the way Moses himself described the purpose of their time in Egypt, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 20, he said the Lord used Egypt like, listen, a mighty iron furnace to temper and strengthen God's people through their years of adversity. But listen, there was another reason for the slavery. As somebody has pointed out, many times suffering and adversity in the world makes a person long to be delivered or to be saved. Okay, Egypt is a type of the world. And when Israel came out of the world, symbolically represented a person coming out of the world, being saved, beginning their walk, which is often the wilderness in the beginning. But eventually the goal is to bring them to the promised land or the spirit-filled life. We'll see that as we go through this uh, book. But many times suffering and adversity in the world makes a person long to be delivered. If it wasn't for the pain and suffering, these people would never have wanted to come out of Egypt, end quote. Goshen was pretty nice, as we have already said. Uh, you know, again, 
God allows us to go through pain, adversity, which is used by him often to bring a person out of the world, to get them saved. How many professional athletes have you heard about that came to Christ when they were at the top of their game, making big money, you know, you know, just the peak of their career? No, it was after they blew their knee out or, or hurt themselves where they had to retire. And they were you know, down in the dumps. and everything. Then God gets a hold of their heart, brings them to Jesus, and so on. It doesn't always happen like that, but oftentimes it does. It takes adversity and trials and pain to work on a person's heart that causes them to want to come out of the world. And then once out of the world, God uses those things to keep us close to him, that we walk in the spirit, and so on. So secondly, though, maybe more importantly, God planted his people in Egypt to prepare them for the promised land. That's true. But secondly, also to prepare the promised land for them. You say, what do you mean? Well, back in Genesis chapter 15, if you remember, God told Abraham that someday he was going to have so many descendants, they would be as the stars in the heavens. In fact, he took them outside. He says, look up into the night sky. If you can count all those stars, Abraham, <laughs> well, you know, that's going to be your descendants someday. However, God told him, though, that initially his descendants would spend 400 years in Egypt until the sins of the Canaanites had reached the point where God could no longer look the other way. He wasn't really looking the other way. He was giving them time to repent is what it was. Where God no longer could give them any more time to repent, but now judgment would have to fall. The sins of the Canaanites were incredibly wicked and barbaric. They worshipped demons. They practiced human torture. They sacrificed their babies to their pagan deities. They were a very wicked people. And God gave them 400 years to repent. They refused. God's very gracious. I mean, he never just brings judgment immediately. He always is trying to woo people to come to him, to get right with him. But eventually God's grace runs out and judgment does have to fall. And so as one author put it, I'm quoting him, like a rabid dog that had to be exterminated, not only in order in order that others wouldn't be infected by their debauchery, but also that they might be put out of their own misery. That's how bad the Canaanites had gotten. Like a rabid dog, there's no hope for a rabid dog. You just have to destroy the animal before it bites and infects other people. That's like some people in some nations. God gives them time to repent. They keep going their own way, becoming more and more entrenched in their sin, more wicked, more sick with sin, until finally God says enough is enough. He removes them from the earth or destroys that nation in judgment. Now that judgment uh, of the Canaanites finally came under Joshua as God told Joshua and the children of Israel to uh, take the armies of Israel and drive out the Canaanites from the land, the land he had promised to give to them. Uh, first to Abraham he promised this. And God told them now it's time for you, Joshua, to take the armies of Israel and drive out the Canaanites because I'm giving you their land to possess. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? Everything in this world belongs to him. People say, well, it wasn't fair that they took, you know. Today we have people saying, well, Israel's occupying the Palestinian homeland. There's never been a Palestinian homeland, okay? That was the land God gave to Abraham and his descendants so many years ago. And he gave it to them in perpetuity. Sure, he removed them a couple of times to deal with their sin always brought them back. The land would always be theirs because God promised it in an everlasting, unconditional covenant. So that is their land, okay? And God 
took the Canaanites out and brought his people in because he can do exactly what he wants. And he promised that land to Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and their descendants. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Now, this new pharaoh knew nothing of Joseph, except, of course, through the official history books of Egypt. He knew who Joseph was. He didn't know him personally. He didn't have any relationship with him, obviously. In his mind, he owed no gratitude to Joseph for saving Egypt from the famine and certain death. I mean, in this new pharaoh's mind, that was ancient history. You know, a lot of people, it's like, not, you know, I don't care what you did for me back then. What are you doing for me today? You're not doing anything for me. So Pharaoh was like, what are we, you know, what am I doing with these folks? Uh, Joseph, I don't know Joseph. Uh, okay, so he was used to save our people back then. That's, well, that's ancient history. And all that mattered to the new Pharaoh seemed to be that the Hebrew population had really grown. And grown so remarkably large over the last few centuries that now he was paranoid of them. He, he was afraid that if an enemy rose up against Egypt, and at this time they were afraid the Hittites were going to invade from the north. The Hittites were a very strong nation. And so he was afraid that if the Hittites, primarily is what he's thinking, invaded Egypt from the north, that the Jews, the Hebrews, would join forces with them and uh, wipe out uh, the Egyptians. Why he believed that, I don't know. I think maybe God allowed that to, him to get paranoid because really, I mean, here you have a group of people that have been with you now for over 400 years. Uh, obviously, they've been blessed in Egypt. This is where their loyalties are. They haven't, you know. So, I don't know. It just seemed like uh, kind of a dumb thing. His solution was, well, let's just make it even harder on them. You want to make an enemy out of somebody? Just grind them into the dirt. I mean, you know, he's worried they're going to join an invading uh, nation. Well, the best way to do to, to prevent that is to treat them good. So they want to side with you and fight on your side. But anyways, his solution was, verse 11... Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them, the Jewish people, with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Now guys, it seems that this was when the slavery of the Jewish people shifted into high gear, quote-unquote, but not when it first started. It probably started, think about this, it probably started as a paid job. Remember in uh, Genesis 47 verse 6, when Jacob and his sons came down to Egypt after Joseph revealed himself to them, he said, Dad, bring the family down here. I'll take care of you. You can live in the land of Goshen. Uh, the Egyptians, they abhorred shepherds and the keeping of sheep and livestock. Although they had sheep, and livestock. So when they came and Pharaoh, you know, wanted to meet Joseph's family and uh, said to Jacob, you know, how old are you? And, you know, Jacob talked with Pharaoh, blessed Pharaoh, and uh, said, well, what do you do for a living? He said, well, your servants uh, were shepherds and keepers of sheep and livestock. And Pharaoh said, well, if you have any good men among you, uh, I'd like to hire them to basically take care of my livestock and sheep. Because again, the Egyptians 
didn't want to get their hands dirty with the raising of the taking care of sheep and so on. So they needed other people to do that. So Jacob and his son started out working for the government, working for Pharaoh. And they were probably very good at what they did. And uh, the Egyptians got used to the Jews serving in this capacity. But over time, Joseph died, of course. And over time, the Egyptians got more and more used to the, to the children of Israel serving them until eventually it became now where it was not a paid service. They just enslaved them and made them slaves of the nation. When it happened, we're not sure, but um, there was one pharaoh that arose, I think the 18th dynasty or whatever, and um, uh, they were very paranoid of foreigners, and so they had all these foreigners living among them, and so they just enslaved them to make sure they controlled them. That was probably when the Jewish people were officially enslaved. But uh, no matter how much Pharaoh, who is a type of Satan, by the way, uh, persecuted the children of Israel, which is a type of the church of Jesus Christ, <laughs> they grew stronger and multiplied more and more. And guys, this growth in the face of affliction has consistently been the story of God's people throughout history. The more they are afflicted, the more they grow. In fact, the ancient Christian writer Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You persecute the church, it just makes it stronger. Here's what persecution does with the people of God in the new church age. Um, it weeds out all the uncommitted, all those people playing games. Okay, Nobody wants to hang in there and be persecuted who really isn't a Christian, who is really not committed to Jesus. And so it weeds out all the phonies, and then it strengthens those who remain because they have to be on their knees constantly. They have to really be drawing on God's faithfulness and strength every day. So it strengthens the church. And as the church is strengthened, those people who don't want to play games look at these people and go, you know, they're willing to die for something. They have a purpose in life. I'm going to join this group. That, that by the way, is why Islam is the fastest growing religion on the face of the planet. Not because they're right, but because they have that kind of commitment. They're willing to die for what they believe in. And people look at that, and, and, and a lot of people look at that and go, it, it has to be the truth because nobody would be that zealous for a lie. Think again. We know that's not the case. A lot of people are zealous because they're deceived. But the, the idea of being committed to what you believe in is a very magnetic thing. People are drawn to that. But the Egyptians forced the Jewish people to build many great cities for them and monuments in Egypt, but not the pyramids. You're thinking, well, maybe they built the pyramids. No, the pyramids were built much earlier, all right, much earlier. But the Jews were, were enslaved and forced to build many great cities, many uh, Egyptian monuments, and so on. And, um, and since historians, guys, aren't exactly sure when this forced labor began, they don't know how long it lasted. Some say it lasted between 130 years and 280. I think it's more close to the 280 that they were really forced into this slavery. But we don't know for sure. Anyways, verse 12. Now we see it shifting into really high gear. But the more the Egyptians afflicted the Jewish people, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor the hebrew word is ruthlessness and cruelty this was a horrible period in the history of the jewish people 
just horrible. And uh, no people, we know no people in recorded history has suffered like the Jewish people have suffered. But listen, as we've already looked at when we studied Genesis, every nation that has oppressed the Jewish people has been punished by God, even as God promised Abraham uh, and his descendants in, uh, in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And the Egyptians were about to find that out firsthand. They would be the first in a long list of people and nations who would come to find out the hard way that if you bless the Jewish people, you will be blessed. If you persecute and harm the Jewish people, God will judge you and judge you severely. After God judged Egypt, they no longer were a world superpower. This was when their downfall occurred. They were still a player uh, in the region, but not like uh, they once were. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he judged Egypt, they never recovered. They never recovered, and that has been the case with many nations uh, that, have, that have come against the Jewish people. So verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, see to them, excuse me, and see them on their on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives can come to them. Uh, now, because the Jewish population was so large, these two midwives were not the only two midwives working the whole Jewish population. They were probably, as somebody put it, the chief administrators of an organization or a group of midwives. All right. So they were the head gals, and that's who Pharaoh, you know, basically said, "Look, you tell your other midwives under you guys, this is what they're supposed to do. Uh, when you're, you know, on the birth stool and the wife woman is delivering, if it's a male child, kill it. If it's a female child, she can, you know, she can live." All right. Um, one author said, "If this plan had succeeded, Pharaoh would have wiped out the Hebrew people." The future generation of men would be dead, and the girls would eventually be married to Egyptian slaves and absorbed into the Egyptian race, end quote. However, it says the midwives feared God. They feared God and refused to do this evil thing. Interesting. Apparently, living among the Jewish people for all the years that they lived among them, they saw that uh, the Jewish people were blessed. They saw these women, their numbers multiplying, they no doubt were, had been witnessed too many times by the Jewish people, talking to them about their God and all. And uh, I believe many of the Jewish midwives, the, uh, excuse me, the Egyptian midwives got saved. And even those that didn't had come to revere and even fear the God of Israel. And so they basically didn't obey what Pharaoh had said. Now, did the midwives lie to Pharaoh? When Pharaoh called them in and said, look, how come these Hebrew male children are not dead? Why are you letting them live? And the midwife says, look, you don't understand. These Jewish women, they're hardy. You know, by the time, before you even get there, they've already delivered the babies. The question is, did they lie to Pharaoh? 
Probably. Probably. You say, well, then why did God bless them? Isn't lying a sin? What I'm about to tell you is controversial. I haven't been able to get completely comfortable with it ever since the first time I heard it. I heard it from Josh McDowell as he was debating an unbeliever on a Christian apologetic program. And um, the unbeliever was a representative from Playboy magazine. And he brought up this issue. He said, if God is a righteous God, and he has said that lying is a sin, why did he bless the Hebrew midwives when they lied? Or for that matter, why did he bless Rahab the harlot when she lied? Now, of course, he was referring to, and I don't know if he knew the scripture, but it was uh, Joshua chapter um, 2, verses 4 to 7. Remember that when Joshua sent in the two spies to spy out the land of the city of Jericho because they were going to attack it? Somehow the king of Jericho gets word that there's a couple of spies from the Hebrews that have entered the city and are staying with Rahab. All right? So he dispatches some soldiers. And before the soldiers get there, she takes the two guys and takes them up to her roof and where she's got flax uh, you know, bundles laid out and, and tells them to climb underneath and she hides them up there. And when the soldiers came and said, look, where are those two guys that were at your house? She said, oh, you know, I don't know who they were. They came and, and they, they left and they slipped out of, the, out of town before they closed the, the gates for the night. Hurry up, you might be able to catch them. And so the guys, the soldiers scurried off and in this way, she lied, but she uh, was used to spare these two spies, spare their lives. Now, this gentleman raises a valid question. I mean, why would God bless people like the midwives or Rahab for lying? Of course, many Christians believe that God forbid all lying in the ninth commandment of the Decalogues. Exodus 20, verse 16, you all know it you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And right here, they say, well, God has forbid lying. Sometimes people even quote it, thou shalt not lie. But actually, it's the, the way it's worded is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's true. Here, God is condemning a form of lying, lying in court under oath, but not necessarily all lying. Now, stay with me. Stay with me. It is true, in Proverbs 12, verse 22, it says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. And yet, in Exodus 1, with the midwives who lied, and in Joshua 2, with Rahab who lied, God actually blessed them, even though they lied. In fact, when it comes to Rahab, she's even mentioned in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, verse 31, as being one of the great examples of faith for what she did. So again, how do we reconcile this apparent contradiction? Is lying bad or is it good? What is it? The best answer I can give you is it depends. It depends. Hear me out and then you can make your own conclusion. All right. When it comes to the subject of laws, thou shalt not lie, it's a law. When it comes to the subject of laws, there are times when laws, listen, can be suspended for the greater good. Turn to Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 2. Before you run out and tell everybody Pastor Phil said it was okay to lie, just, just uh, hear me out. 
And uh, let's look at this together. Stay calm. Uh, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now it happened that he, Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of the grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he, Jesus, said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread which was not lawful to eat except for the priests and also gave some to those who were with him. The Lord Jesus is teaching that in the face of human need and of course in that passage it was a case of hunger a law of God can be temporarily listened can be temporarily suspended like the law concerning the showbread, it could be temporarily suspended for the greater good. God had instituted a law that said that every week a fresh batch of bread, now there were 12 loaves, uh, baked it with a certain recipe. These were one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Every week they were baked fresh and put into the tabernacle and laid in the temple on a very special golden table called the table of showbread. When they would bake a new set of these loaves 12 for the new week the 12 loaves from the previous week were given to the priests and they and their families could eat of them but only the priest that was the law nobody else was to eat these loaves but here as jesus points out uh, in the old testament that when david and his men were fleeing from saul that they were hungry they were on the run didn't bring any supplies they left so quickly so they went into the uh, the at that time it was the tabernacle, and um, said to the priest, have you got any food? We're, we're really hungry. Well, only the bread that's the showbread. And David took it, and he and his men ate. And Jesus said, God did not hold them or account them guilty, even though they broke a law that he had uh, instituted. Look, in the law, God said that stealing was a crime, a sin. Okay, Taking anything from your neighbor, that was stealing. That was a, that was a sin, right? And yet he allowed a person that was hungry to enter into another person's field. Now you're on a journey. You're hungry. God says you can go into another man's field, another Jew, and you can take grain or fruit enough to satisfy your hunger, and I will not count you a thief. I will not uh, count to you a crime. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, why don't you turn there? Deuteronomy 23, we see this law. Verse 24, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. So you couldn't bring a bushel in and start picking the grapes off of his you know, vine there and fill up your little basket. It wasn't a grocery store. If you were hungry, you could eat whatever you wanted to eat. And he goes on to say, verse 25, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. All right? The, the idea is that, look, God says thou shalt not steal. But human need, hunger, superseded that law and suspended it, we'll say. Thou shalt not steal is a universal law. It's always in effect, except 
When another more important need comes into play, human suffering or human need. It's kind of like, for a lack of a better way to explain this, gravity is a universal law of nature which God has ordained, right? We're all subject to it. It's always in force, except you can override or suspend the law of gravity. How? By putting another uh, more powerful law in place, which is the law of aerodynamics. If you climb into an airplane and the thing starts run, going down the, the runway, as soon as it builds up enough speed, lift takes place on the wings and you are lifted off the ground. Now, the law of gravity is still in operation. It's just been overridden by another more powerful law, the law of aerodynamics. If you step out of that plane, you will find out very quickly the law of gravity is still in effect. As long as you're in the plane, though, one overrides the other. In a crude way, that's kind of what we're talking about, okay? Yes, God has certain laws in place, but there are other laws, the laws of life, that supersede these what God would consider important laws, but lesser than the laws that, get, that pertain to life. Look, the Sabbath law was a law where God prohibited the Jewish people from doing any work on that day, right? And yet Jesus Christ constantly did good works for people on the Sabbath. He got in a lot of trouble from the Jewish establishment, but he constantly, in their minds, broke the Sabbath law, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath law. He was putting another more important law in operation, which overrode the law of the Sabbath, the law of human need. Turn to Matthew 12. I want you to keep that in mind. The Lord Jesus Christ never broke the law. He was not a lawbreaker. When he worked on the Sabbath, he was putting one law that was more important in operation, which overrode, didn't break, it overrode another law of God, the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, starting in verse 9, and actually in Matthew 12, in this section, it's just the same basically as the one we just read out of Mark, but it continues in verse 9, Matthew 12, verse 9. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who, who had a withered hand, and they asked him, Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? So they set up this whole thing. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew, isn't it interesting, his enemies often knew him better than his friends. His enemies knew there is no way the Lord Jesus Christ could walk into a place and ignore a human, a human need, suffering. They knew he would be automatically drawn to the person who had the greatest need. And he would want to heal that need. So they set this deal up because they wanted him to violate the Sabbath, quote-unquote, so they could accuse him of being a lawbreaker. And then, of course, uh, kill him, basically. Verse 11. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful, listen, to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Notice what he says. Therefore it is lawful, He's not breaking the Sabbath law. 
he is setting it aside for the purpose of instituting a greater law, the law of love and compassion. But you have to understand, he's not breaking the law. One is just superseding or temporarily suspending the other. Look, the bottom line is it's always lawful to help people, even when laws are broken in the process. This is especially true when it comes to saving or protecting life. Let me illustrate it with this. Say a city or a municipality owned a piece of ground. And for whatever reason, they put a fence all around that property with signs all over that fence that read something to the effect, do not trespass, against the law, violators will be prosecuted. To enter into that land is to violate the law and to render you guilty in a court of law. Now, let's just say for the sake of argument that that same piece of land contained a pond. And as you were walking by, you saw the fence, you saw the signs, but you also saw the pond, and you realized that a group of boys had jumped the fence and have gone swimming, you know, went swimming in the pond. But on a closer examination, you look, they're not swimming, they're drowning. So what do you do? Oh, I can't go in there. It's against the law. Science says it. No, what do you do? You jump the fence, you break the law, you run over, you save the kids. There is not a court in this world that's going to prosecute you because of what you did. Why? Because life trumps law. Sometimes, for the greater good, we have to violate a law. But it's always for the greater good, right? Whenever I think of this subject, I always think of the family of Corey Tenboom that hid Jews during World War II to protect them from being killed by the Nazis. And then when the Nazis knocked on their door, they would lie. Do you have Jews here? You hiding Jews? No, we don't have any Jews here. They lied. Do you think God charged the Ten Boom family with the sin of lying? I don't. But I could be wrong. You have to decide on your own. I believe in that situation, the law of life superseded the law of lying against lying. Okay? Look, lying for selfish reasons or with the intent to harm another is wrong. It is a sin. But God's law against lying is superseded by the greater good of wanting to save life. And this, guys, is what both, this is what both the Egyptian midwives and Rahab did. They lied to save life. They lied to save life. Now listen. The reason I have spent so much time developing this subject tonight is because the day might be coming in the near future when our nation will begin to persecute believers, much like Nazi Germany did uh, the Jews back at the time of World War II. If that happens and we find ourselves in a place where we can help our brothers and sisters hide them, protect them, then we may have to lie to protect them to the authorities. Now look, if that day should ever come, I want you to have some kind of biblical justification for it. I'm not selling it to you. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying this has become my conviction. And I see the scriptures and I see examples of this very issue how when it comes to the greater good of helping people, especially protecting life, 
it seems to me that that good overrides the laws against lying. That's just me, though, all right? That may not square with your conscience. I understand that. I respect that. And I would never want you to do anything to violate your conscience when it comes to what affects your life personally. However, I want you to consider this. What you do because of your convictions and your conscience that affects you is your business. But does that give you the right to impose your convictions on others? Especially if it means they will be killed because you refuse to lie to protect them. I think Warren Worsby has something important to say on this subject. He said, and I'm quoting him, let's confess that most of us would hesitate to tell the truth if it really were a matter of life and death. It's one thing for me to tell the truth about myself and suffer for it. But do I have the right to cause the death of others, especially those who have come under my roof for protection? Many people have been honored for deceiving the enemy during wartime and saving innocent lives, end quote. And, you know, that time might be coming upon us in the near future. I don't know. One other point, and we'll bring this to a close. This is the first instance in the scripture of what today we call civil disobedience. Civil disobedience, or in other words, refusing to obey an unjust or even an evil law because it violates something God has commanded. Scriptures like Matthew 20, verses 21 to 25, Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, admonish Christians to obey human government, human authorities. But Romans 13, verse 5 reminds us that our obedience must not violate our conscience. Our conscience, which is built on God's laws and our commitment to him as our king and the ultimate authority over our lives. We, we respect the government, uh, earthly governments, because the Bible says we are to respect authority. We are to be law-abiding, not lawbreakers, not rebels. Except... When man enacts laws that violate God's laws, then Peter was right in Acts 5, verse 29, when he said, in those cases, we must obey God rather than men. And the context for them was, you can't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Really? Well, my Lord and Savior, who has the ultimate authority over my life, has told me to go in all the world and preach the good news to everybody. So whether we should obey God or man, you decide. We can't help but speak the things we have, we have heard and seen. So... When it comes to obeying human government, human authority, yes. If it doesn't violate our conscience because it doesn't violate something God has forbidden us to do or vice versa. If it's something that God has forbidden, then human government can't tell us, we can't violate our conscience by doing it. And uh, if uh, God says to do it, human government says you can't do it, then again, we must obey God rather than man. And, of course, we see this exemplified not only in the midwives, this civil disobedience, but also uh, among Daniel's, uh, Daniel and his friends, basically. Uh, in Daniel 1, they refused to eat the king's delicacies, but chose to eat only vegetables, all right? Uh, that was something Arioch, the king's head servant, was commanded to have them eat of the king's delicacies. They said, that's defiled food. It's unlawful for us to eat that, okay? So we just want to eat vegetables, and Arioch was afraid it was going to mean his head if they looked kind of weak and skinny. So they said, test us for 10 days. 
And if we don't look better than the guys eating all the junk of Babylon, then we'll, you know, so Ariok did, they look great. Okay, eat vegetables, as long as you look good, otherwise it's my head, all right? But of course, in Daniel 3, uh, Daniel was away somewhere on the affairs of state, and uh, you remember the story of the 90-foot uh, golden image that, that Nebuchadnezzar built and wanted everyone to bow down and worship it, but Daniel's three buddies would not. So they were defying a direct order from the king himself. And, uh, they, and, and the king threatened them with death. They said, King, we're not going to even be careful to answer you in this. It's not even up for debate. We're not afraid of your decree. You can throw us into the fiery furnace. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to your gold image because that's idolatry. And we, uh, we are, are uh, held accountable to a higher standard, a higher authority, which is God Almighty. All right, verse 20. Therefore God dwelt uh, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So he blessed them with uh, families and a lot of children and so on. Verse 22, so Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who was born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now, when Pharaoh saw his initial plan to kill the male Hebrew babies at the hands of the midwives didn't work, he changed the strategy. He then ordered, and it sounds like a universal order, but I believe it was directed to the Jewish people, obviously. He ordered that every Jewish family be held legally responsible, listen, to drown their own infant newborn sons in the Nile River. Now forget the midwives. I'm going to make it a law that every Jewish family, it's your responsibility under the pain of death that if you have a male child, if an infant son is born, you're to throw that child in the Nile River, drown him. The, the, the girl babies, they can live. Well, <laughs> uh, that then set the stage for some civil disobedience on the part of, a, of one Jewish family who refused to drown their newborn son. Of course, that family was the family of Moses and uh, we'll look at that next time because that's that's the segue into chapter 2 but um, again disobeying a direct order a direct law from the king of Egypt because they believe that life was more important than any human law and they refused to uh, obey what the king had said and uh, we'll see how God honored it how God blessed it look again we are to be law-abiding. But more and more in our country, we are facing a time when the laws of our land are becoming increasingly contrary to what God has said. We have to take a stand right now. Now, I'll tell you this. If you're going to take a stand, you have to then be ready to deal with the consequences. Because there are consequences to violating human law. But if those laws are unjust and they go against what God has said, then we are on solid ground to say we must obey God rather than men. Um, and as far as the other thing is concerned, lying to save life, again, I'll, I'll leave that with you to wrestle with. All right? I, I just feel that this is what God, you know, has allowed. And um, the reason I spend so much time on it tonight is because the time may come when we're going to have to make a decision. Uh, we're going to have to maybe uh, try to protect some people who have done nothing wrong, but just because of their faith are being persecuted. And are we willing to do what it takes to see them safe?
And uh, so your conscience doesn't completely go crazy with that. Think about what we said tonight. I think we have a biblical uh, framework uh, upon which to say, look, um, if I have to lie to protect somebody who's being unfairly treated, I can do that to save life. But again, that's uh, something you have to bring before God and deal with in your own heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your goodness, your grace. And Father, we pray that you give us grace to work through this issue. That, Lord, uh, if I have misrepresented you tonight, please um, speak to me so that I can get this right. Uh, Lord, uh, we never want to do anything that would be uh, wrong or that would violate anything you have said. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you give us grace and um, continue now to, to bless these studies in your word. This is an incredible book. We want to, Lord, uh, mind the depths of this incredible book to learn all the things you want us to learn. And even then, we'll just scratch the surface. But lead us, Lord, in this study. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.